Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Good morning. Our scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he does it. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. So happy to be with you all, and we can look at the scriptures together, learn from the Word of God together. Let's invite the Spirit of God to be our teacher. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace to us. (sighs) Thank you that we can be here together, that we can sing hallelujah, praise God together. God, that there's nothing restricting us from coming together and meeting under your name, praising you, glorifying you. And Lord, we just ask that you would fulfill your promise, that you promised to send your spirit to be our teacher. You said it was better that you send your spirit to teach us than that Jesus should stay with us. It's actually better that the spirit be here to teach us then Jesus be right next to us teaching us. So would you complete that promise and teach us all things according to your promise? And teach us today what we have to learn here, God. This word, this word about the power 
and the authority of Jesus Christ. God, let us relish in his power, in his authority. Let us delight in it. Give us a revelation to understand how different Jesus is. That he's different than anything we've seen before. So open our eyes, God. Spirit, breathe on us. Let us see the truth. Open hearts. Show us ways that we have not subjected ourselves to the authority and power of Jesus Christ. Show us ways that we haven't believed that, that we haven't understood that. So we just surrender our hearts to you. We subject ourselves to you. We bow our knees to you and our hearts. And we invite you, our Lord, our sovereign God, come teach us. Teach us the way. So be on, my, be on me, be on my mouth, on my tongue. Cleanse my lips as you have the power to make clean. Cleanse my lips and let me speak your truth, God. And I pray all these things in the name of that powerful name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in this transition from the Sermon on the Mount to something different, we see that the crowd takes note about something about Jesus, right? They see that Jesus is different. After he finishes moral teachings, his Sermon on the Mount, the crowd recognized that Jesus is different than all the religious teachers that they had ever listened to. But what kind of different? It's important to notice what kind of different that they noticed. It wasn't that he was more kind. You notice that? It wasn't that he was more gracious or more loving. Now, certainly, Jesus is all those things, but that's not what they noticed. There was a fundamental difference between Jesus and all those teachers that the people were accustomed to, and the difference was his authority. So, he said, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. If you're wondering where that is, maybe you don't have a Bible, and my wife Jenna has Bibles for you. So go ahead, raise your hand and get a Bible, all right? Um, and read along. So the scribes, they could not speak on morality with absolute authority, right? That was the difference. They could wrangle manuscripts and ancient texts. They could recite the law of Moses in ancient Hebrew. Pretty impressive stuff. They could cross-reference all these different rabbis' teachings. They knew the dietary restrictions. They knew the moral laws. They could recite them like they knew the back of their hand, right? But when it came to authoritatively teaching how one should live... It was all secondhand information, right? But Jesus was different. He told people the way as though he himself were the lawgiver, as though he himself were the giver of moral truth. Jesus has ultimate authority when it comes to matters of righteous living, and the crowds could not help but be drawn to him. 
They could not help but follow him and say, I want to hear more from this Jesus who, who knows the way. But now, Jesus is going to go further than this. He's not simply going to speak with authority. He's going to show his authority. It's one thing to tell it. It's another thing to show it. And you see, it is, it's, it's going to be a display of authority with power. So in chapters 8 through 9, Jesus proves his spiritual authority and his spiritual power, his authority over invisible things by displaying his power over earthly things, the things that are visible. And then in chapter 10, by this authority that he proves, he commissions his apostles on his mission, preaching the kingdom of God. And in the following chapters, the scope of his power and authority continue to unfold. So we're in for a lot in this series, the king's authority. In today's passage, and in this first paragraph, Jesus shows his authority to make clean. He then shows the scope of his authority in the story of the centurion, and that's all that we're really going to go deep into. But as Matthew unfolds the authority and power of Jesus in this gospel, we begin to understand that Jesus's authority is different than anything that we have seen so far. We realize from these stories that we must change how we perceive Jesus. We must let Jesus shape the way also that we perceive how authority works. So let me one more time invite the Spirit to be our teacher. Heavenly Father, God, give us a spirit of revelation. Let wisdom rest upon your people here. Let truth rest upon your people here. Let us know Jesus. And let us walk according to the, the authority and power you have given him. It is limitless. So put joy in our hearts as we understand these truths. Put delight in our hearts. We love you. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the first miracle is in verses 1 through 4. Go ahead and look at that. Now, in these miracles, we can become so acquainted with Jesus' miracles, like this healing of the leper, that we lose sight of their significance, what it is that they teach us about Jesus and about God. But the Jews, they would have understood, right? The Jews who witnessed this miracle, the Jews who were reading this gospel. Remember, this, this gospel we're reading, Matthew, he was writing primarily to Jews, He's writing the gospel to show them that, yes, Jesus is this messianic authority that was predicted for you, and yes, here is the power of the Messiah. So he's writing especially to Jews. And if you were a Jew who knew the law, you would know the laws in the Old Testament regarding unclean things and leprosy. You probably knew people who were lepers, right? For example, you wouldn't know that lepers were commanded by God to rend their clothes and to cry out wherever they went, unclean, unclean. You know, we have a lot, a lot of restrictions today, but at least the CDC isn't asking us to do that, right? 
So the concept of uncleanness is really significant in the Old Testament law. It's not merely disease. Uncleanness is bigger than that. Essentially, it's unholiness. What is unclean is not allowed in the presence of God's people and is not allowed in the presence of God himself. It would be destroyed if it came into the presence of God. No unclean thing may come before his presence. So the law identified things that were unclean. There were things like dead bodies, men and women in a state of bodily discharge, diseased people, and diseased property. These were all considered unclean by the law. And if you touched these things, their uncleanness was transferred to you. You were made unclean by them. And so the laws of the Old Testament had to do with keeping you away from unclean things to keep the people of God ritually clean so they could approach God and continue in fellowship with Him and with the people of God. And on top of that, there were processes in the law whereby someone could become clean again. If they were made unclean, they could become clean again. And typically, it looked like isolation for a period of time, washing of water, and sacrifices. Now, as far as leprosy goes, this was the righteousness of God. If you had this disease, you had to live separate from the people, and you could not approach God for sacrifices. That is God's law. But Jesus, Jesus, in fact, he does something different than the law. Jesus doesn't even socially distance from the leper. Jesus, he doesn't even wear the proper PPE when he's touching him. And Jesus doesn't even reprimand the leper. Shouldn't you be in quarantine? Now, he could have. He had the right to. After all, God had commanded these things. That was the law of God. But what does Jesus do? He actually touches the leper. Maybe you guys are getting scared right now. You're like, where is this about to go? (laughs) Oh, shoot. Well, don't worry. Just believe, okay? Trust God. So, So after seeing what the people saw, I mean, how different is Jesus, right? What they saw was totally different than anything they had ever seen. The authorities in Jesus' time, they knew better than Jesus, right? They knew the law. They knew to stay away from this man, and they would have told that guy to leave, but not Jesus. So how can he do this? What makes him different? The difference is not simply that Jesus is kinder, okay? I mean, I think he is, but that's not the main difference. The difference is his authority and his power. By no means does Jesus transgress the law. Rather, he transcends the law. He could draw near to this man because unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus has authority and power over every unclean thing. Unlike the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus cannot be made unclean. A natural man should become unclean by touching a leper, should contract the disease, 
But Jesus cannot be made unclean. He is not subject to uncleanness or to disease. Rather, they are subject to him. Nothing can taint his absolute righteousness and his absolute purity. And on top of it, what Jesus touches can actually become clean. So what a change in the scriptures we see. In the law, it was about staying away from what was unclean. That was righteousness. But Christ draws near to the unclean and makes them clean. Uncleanness does not spread to him, but he spreads cleanness. He spreads purity. He spreads righteousness. It reminds me of the prophet Isaiah. When Isaiah met the holy, all-powerful God, he understood what was wrong with him immediately. He said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When meeting face to face with the holy, pure, righteous King of all, he is totally conscious of his own uncleanness. But God, he cleansed Isaiah. This was, this was so dramatically different than anything they had seen before in the Old Testament. God cleansed Isaiah. God sent an angel to him with a burning coal in his hand, touched it to Isaiah's lips, and the angel said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So before this story, it was all about keeping away from what was unclean, but this is the first time in the Bible that we see something that by its touch cleanses what is unclean, and this is the power of Christ. He is the burning coal that touches what is unclean, that cannot be made unclean, but makes clean. This is why all people, no matter their state of uncleanness, can come to Christ and be saved, and be made clean. The Apostle Paul, he said this of the believers in Corinth. He said that they were a people of unclean and sinful lifestyles, but by God's grace and power, they had been cleansed from their uncleanness. He says this in 1 Corinthians 6. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. Praise God. That is us. Such were some of us. But he has cleansed us. His touch makes clean. It has made us clean. So Jesus has the authority to make clean. He cleanses us of our sins. If only we will believe in him and call on his name for salvation the Lord Jesus Christ. And the leper, he came to Jesus with this very attitude of faith. 
believing that if Jesus willed it, he could be cleansed. If you will it, you can cleanse me. Not just healed, but cleansed. And Jesus was willing. He touched him and he said, I will be clean. And immediately, immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. You know, the Jews who read the story, they would have known that there had been nothing like this before. Outside of Jesus' earthly ministry, there's only one leper that we know about who was supernaturally cleansed in the Old Testament, and that was Naaman the Syrian. He was cleansed when the prophet Elisha told him to immerse himself in the Jordan River seven times. And this showed that Naaman's healing did not come from Elisha. Elisha didn't even see the guy. He sent a servant to talk to him. Elisha didn't touch him. He said, God says to go get baptized seven times. Talk about rebaptism, right? <laughs> and he, this was to show that his healing did not come from the prophet Elisha, from a man. It came from God. God healed Naaman. And now someone was again being healed of leprosy, but by the touch of a man of power, the touch of the Son of God, his authority and power greater than any they had ever seen. So Jesus, he has the authority to cleanse. This is not all that we learn of his authority in this passage we also see the scope of his authority. And we see this in verses 5 through 13, the story of the Roman centurion. The centurion, he approaches Jesus, and he asks him to heal his servant. Now, there are a few lessons to be learned from the story about the scope of Jesus' authority. First, we gain two lessons from the centurion's own spiritual insight, his own faith into the scope of Jesus' authority. During the course of their conversation, after asking him to heal, he says, Jesus says, all right, I'll come, I'll go. But the centurion says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And then he says these words, this sentence, I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. Now, that is such a short sentence, but there's so much spiritual insight that this guy has about Jesus, so much that he believes about Jesus. So there's two lessons that we can get from this statement. First, Jesus also is a man under authority. And the second is that Jesus is a man with authority under him. He has authority over. So that first lesson, Jesus is a man under authority we could easily miss this in all of this, all of what we're learning about Jesus, because Jesus is displaying his power and authority over a great many things that we've never seen before. But the centurion points out that Jesus himself is actually under authority. There is someone in authority over the Son. And this is nothing less than the doctrine of the Son's subjection to the Father. And you see it all over the scriptures. This is something that we talk about less. We talk about Jesus' ultimate authority, but we forget that where his authority came from, his Father. Jesus said in John 5, 27, that the Father has given the Son authority 
to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That was John 5, 27. You see, the Son is under the Father's authority. He actually receives authority and power from the Father. There is not authority but the ones that God ordains, and Jesus receives his authority solely from his Father. Now, that's not all that we learned, though, that we know about the authority of Jesus in relation to his Father. The Son also obeys the authority of the Father. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus makes it clear that he doesn't do his own will, but follows the commands and the wills, the will, of his Father. And he says this in John 8, 28 through 29. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, talking about the cross, when you have lifted him up, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That was the posture of Jesus toward his Father. And listen to what Paul says of Jesus' submission in Philippians chapter 2. He exhorts us, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see how different Jesus is? Jesus is showing us true righteousness. In all things, Jesus is willingly subject to his Father. He actually relishes in his position to please his authority. He delights in doing the will of his Father. It's his bread, he says. My bread is to do the will of my Father. That's my sustenance. That's my bread and butter, you know? He loves the commands of his Father. Right? It's the heart of David that, that Jesus has in Psalm 119, right? The longest chapter in the whole Bible where he's just talking about how much he loves and delights in the commands and precepts of God. Oh, I love your laws. I love your commandments. How many of you wake up in the morning and say, I love the commandments of God. Yes, what can I do to obey him today? What's his will for today? What can I do? That's the heart of Jesus. But that's... That's the truth, isn't it? I mean, can you tell me, do you often see this Christ-like attitude on display? Right? Do you see this Christ-like attitude in yourself, in others, in the church today, in American churches? The truth is that Christ's attitude of joyful obedience to the Father is lacking in his people. The son, he knew his, who his authority was. Do you? 
Do we? Does the American church? The only authority above Jesus is the Father, and he knew that. But we, oh, we have so many authorities over us. We're not Jesus, okay? <laughs> um, and all of these authorities, they have been placed there by God. As Romans 13.1 says, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Authorities of government, authorities of church, authorities of family, they were all ordained by God. There is no authority but the one that God has ordained. Can you identify your authorities? Do you know who your authorities are in your life? Can you list them? Do you know who you are responsible to obey? I mean, the Father, Christ, but can you go beyond that, or do you think that you're like Jesus? It's just the Father is your authority. The fact is that Christians, American Christians especially, I'm really bashing American Christians today, they're, I can only speak about them. I don't know what's going on everywhere else. But the fact is that Christians are often better at taking Satan's example than their Lord's example. It was Satan who first sought to be his own sovereign. He said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. That was the heart of Satan. You see, it's a satanic philosophy that would lead us to rebellion against God and against our God-given authorities, for it is God himself who we seek to dethrone by our rebellion. Do we really think we're better than God? This satanic attitude has been with us since the fall. Ever since humanity ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we think we know what's best. We think we know good from evil. We think we can judge right from wrong. And so when a judgment comes to us, a commandment, we say, um, I don't think so. I think I know what's better. Um, I'm going to do this. I think I know right. Here comes a situation. What do I do here? I think I know what to do. What about the will of your father? So you see, we must learn the first lesson that Christ teaches us. This is the first lesson of the Christian walk. If you skip this, you miss everything. The first lesson is obedience. Everything follows after that. Everything in the Christian life is obedience. So if you miss out who your Lord is and who you're called to obey, you will miss it all. That's the first lesson that Christ teaches us. Trust and obey. It's the first, life, the first lesson in the Christian life. Trust and obey. Do you recognize that old hymn? Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. It's even deeper than that. Those are words to live by. And if we skip this lesson, we lose everything in the Christian life. So God presents us with a different concept of authority then comes natural, right? That's not natural for us. We think that we know best. 
We think we are our own authority. But he presents us something different in Jesus. Jesus doesn't shirk off authority. He doesn't do what he thinks is best. He does the will of his Father. And he embraces his authority. He doesn't do what he wants. He does the Father's will. He doesn't follow the will of Satan, the way of Satan, but shows us another way, the way of subjection, the way of obedience. Jesus willingly submits to the Father, and we must follow his example. So learn to trust and obey God and his Son, and learn to obey the earthly authorities he has placed over you. Your ultimate authority is the Father and the Son, and their authorities he has placed over you. If they disagree with the authority that is higher than them, you obey the Father and the Son. If they have a disagreement, you know which one to go with. The Father is higher. The Son is higher. But more so than Jesus, remember that you also are under authority. And if Jesus can submit, then you can too. The second spiritual insight from the centurion regarding Christ's authority. Jesus is a man with authority under him. When the centurion asked Jesus to heal his servant, Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord... I am not worthy that, to have you come under my roof. Only say the word, and my servant will be healed. The centurion believed that Jesus had the authority and power to simply say a word, and then it would be made so. He believed Jesus didn't even need to be in the same house as the servant. He didn't need to see him. He didn't need to be near him. He believed that Jesus' authority transcends space. Proximity doesn't matter. That Jesus commands things to be and so they are. The centurion believed Christ's authority was absolute. And that faith made Jesus marvel. There's only a few times that we see Jesus marvel. But Jesus said, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He marveled. Be it according to your faith. You know, it reminds me, though, of another, of another time that Jesus marveled at faith. But he didn't marvel at it for the reason you think. He marveled at it for the lack of faith. And this was in Mark 6. Jesus was visiting his hometown of Nazareth. Everybody there knew Jesus growing up, right? And the scripture says that the people, though, were offended by his teaching. Who's this guy? We know your mom. We know your mama. We know you nothing. I don't know where, I, Nazareth, they, they talk like that. <laughs> but the scripture says they were offended. And in verse 5, it gives this testimony about them. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. So you see, although the authority and power of Jesus are limitless, though they, you cannot hold it back, wherever he is, he has power, he can command a thing to be, yet we also see that he exercises his authority according to our faith and according to our obedience. 
the people of Nazareth, did not recognize Jesus' authority. They did not submit to it, nor did they believe it. But the centurion believed and submitted. The first word he says to Jesus, what was it? He says, Lord, Lord. He called him Lord, just as the leper had in our first story, and just as all do who willingly subject themselves to the supreme authority of Christ and who wish to see his authority and his power at work in their lives. So we must ask ourselves, do we really believe that his authority and power over, are over all things, over us, over everything around us, over Burlington, over Vermont, over the world? Does he really have authority and power over all these things? Over this church right here, his authority and power are present and active? Do we believe that? Or do we not recognize his authority and power? Do we limit his power and authority over us by our unbelief? Can he do no miracle among us because we do not believe? So our impulse is to be our own Lord's but Christ presents us something different. He commands our obedience and our faith, our belief and our submission. So, church, let us put to death our rebellion. Let us put to death our unbelief. We must, if we wish to see him do mighty works here. So let that be our prayer. Now, besides these spiritual insights of the centurion, there's something else that we learn about Jesus' authority in this passage. And we learn it from the fact that Jesus was not a Jew. I mean, excuse me. You know, you're like, wait, what? <laughs> Jesus is not a Jew. I'm about to go off on some crazy thing here. <laughs> he was actually an American. Um, so, <laughs> oh boy. So what I meant to say was the centurion was not a Jew, okay? The centurion was a Gentile, and more than that, he was a Roman, okay? Matthew is making a point to his Jewish readers that this Messiah king, he wasn't, he wasn't ethnocentric. He wasn't simply for the Jewish people. He was for all peoples, all who believe in him, all who call upon him, all who submit to him as Lord. He is for all peoples. It was easy for the Jews to think that they were somehow superior to the Gentiles. I mean, they were, after all, the chosen people of God. They had slain giants, you know, they had taken this land and they had had the milk and the honey, right? But they were, this, this interaction shows that Jesus shows that his favor can also be for a non Jew, for a Gentile that they can also call on him as Lord, and so much more. And you see this in verses 10 through 12. Truly, Jesus says, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Even in his own people who he had chosen did not believe in his authority and power. But he says, I tell you, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. How easy it is for the sons of the kingdom, God's intended chosen ones, to forget his authority and power. Listen, if we forget Jesus' lordship over us, if we throw off that easy yoke of his lordship, he'll do just what he did then with the Jews. He said, all right, cutting you off, and I'm grafting in someone new. I can find someone to submit to my lordship. And so we see Christ's authority, though. We see this principle. It's not over just an ethnic people, one ethnic people. It is over all peoples, all ethnic groups, all the nations. The lordship of Christ is for. So the authority that the Father established in Christ, do you see how different it was? maybe than our perceptions, than the people who were with Jesus, different than their expectations. So different. So in conclusion, we're seeing all these differences, that he is the judge of all. And he has the authority to cleanse, to make clean anyone who comes to him that he is subject under the authority of his Father and yet Lord over all. And that he reigns over all the nations and he reigns over those who believe and obey him and his power, the power of his authority is displayed for those who believe him. So I want to leave you with a challenge I want you to ask yourself this question. I'm going to ask it for you. If you truly believed in Jesus as Lord, and if you truly believe what these, these passages are saying about Jesus' authority, how would that change your life? How would that change your life? What would your life look like are there certain sins or rebellious attitudes that would be gone? Would you run to him for cleansing? Would you call upon his name more desperately and with more confidence, more often? Would you get on your knees more often and say, Lord, I need you today. I have a request to bring to you. You are Lord over all, and I believe that you can do this, so my request is for you to do this. What's your prayer life like? Does it acknowledge the lordship and authority and power of Christ? And how would you treat those authorities that God has placed over you? Would you treat them a little different if you realized that he actually put them over you? So what would look different? So I want to call us to obedience. What's the point, church, of looking at the word, this mirror, showing us who we are? What's the point of looking at it if after looking at the mirror, we see all the ugliness and we say, okay, that was cool. That was a good sermon. I really like that. That's going to make me think about it for a while. All right, time to go to work. And don't change anything? That's not obedience. That's not acknowledging the authority and power of the Lord Jesus Christ over our lives. And so we must resolve to obey him. And so I just want us to have a time of prayer right now. 
where we all by ourselves ask ourselves these questions. What would my life look like? So go ahead, bow, bow your heads, close your eyes, put your hands together, don't touch your neighbors. And consider this. What would my life look like? Lord Jesus, I resubmit my life to you. I'm putting myself down on the ground, my knees on the ground, and I'm saying, you are Lord. I'm refreshing my submission. I'm refreshing my faith and my belief. And what must I do now to obey you? So ask, your, ask God to reveal this to you. I believe, I believe that you are reigning Lord over this right now, all of this, and that you have authority and power to cleanse hearts, to make clean everyone who's sitting in this room. I don't care who they are, myself included, you have authority and power to make clean. You have authority and power to bring us into subjection, to hold us captive, to possess us for yourself, for your glory, to conquer us. So Lord, conquer us so that we may not be conquered by Satan and his philosophies. We reject satanic rebellion in the name of Jesus. We will not be rebels we will be obedient servants by your grace, by your spirit. God, let such fruit come from this, this time of prayer. Let there be such fruit of obedience that is so precious to you, that is pleasing to you. Let obedience run like rivers out of this to your glory. Touch every heart here. Make them clean. Touch every heart here. Heal them. Touch every heart here and lead them to subjection to you and to no other. <sighs> Heavenly Father, we entrust ourselves to you, this church. I pray that you would guide us now as we go into our time of worship, as we go into worshiping you through the Lord's Supper, as we remember your son, how he was broken and rent for us, his blood spilled for us. Let us remember that he is our authority who laid down his own life for us to make us clean by his blood. So God, give us hearts of worship to praise you now. Oh, to praise you. You are king over all. You are glorious. 
There is none more glorious and beautiful than you. You are precious and holy and righteous, and we trust you, God. All these things we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Amen.